get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards as well as a shout out on the show. Thanks to our latest donor, Martin Horn. Martin is an aspiring novelist. He worked as a feature writer a few years ago and he's done some institutional communications work before becoming a marketing consultant, which is what he does full time. He's gone back to school to do a master's in English with a focus on post-war British spy fiction, which sounds fascinating. Um, Good luck with all of your writing endeavours, Martin. We've recently launched a new tier for our most generous supporters. If you pledge $20 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter worth $26. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help handling interview audio with my magazine work. You also get access to a series of mini episodes from previous guests on the show in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Jonathan Beckman, the deputy editor of 1843 magazine, and here's a snippet. I would say that all writing careers are affected by a sense of constant failure and that the mark of a true writer is really to think that every piece you've written has somehow failed to come up to the mark. Uh, I think this is actually a kind of function of writing itself, that what you really want to be able to do is say everything that you know simultaneously, but you're actually uh, trapped by having to work within the linear confines of the written word. Uh, But the specific time that I failed was when I was writing... Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we spoke to magazine writer and author Samira Shackle. We spoke with Samira about Karachi Vice, her book that aims to get under the skin of Pakistan's largest city, about her magazine writing work and her fascinating investigation into the curious case of the Gatwick drone. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Samira, to Always Take Notes. It's great to have you on the show. Could we start by talking about your book, uh, Karachi Vice, um, how you came up with the idea, the the pieces that it grew out of from The Guardian, if you could just sort of spin the yarn of how it came to be. Yeah, sure. So the book um, grew out of reporting that I've been doing uh, for several years. Uh, so I actually started reporting on Karachi back in 2011 when I first went freelance. Um, I left my job at The New Statesman and I moved to Pakistan, which is where I've got family. It's where my mum's from. And I moved in with relatives in Karachi um, in 2012 and, and lived there for about six months and reported on the city and um, and the the whole Pakistan was in a kind of terrible situation then um, in terms of terrorist violence and various different issues in Karachi, including organised crime and so on. So that was kind of how I kickstarted my freelance career. And then after about a year in Pakistan, so six months in Karachi, six months in Islamabad covering the election, I came back um, but I was still really drawn to Karachi. It was just such a such a complicated and such a fascinating place with so many different things going on. Um, and I found myself kind of constantly coming up with different sort of story ideas and going back there over the over the years. Um, and the book, as you say, grew out of a couple of pieces that I did. Um, the first was in 2015. It was my first piece for the Guardian Long Read. Um, and it was a profile of a crime reporter in Karachi uh, who ended up featuring them in the book. And then about a year later, I did a piece which was originally for Mosaic, which was um, an online publication run by the Wellcome Trust, which had quite generous travel money, which was great. But it was also republished by The Guardian. Um, and that was profi- quite a similar piece, I guess. It was profiling an ambulance driver in the city. 
And in the course of doing those two pieces, I noticed that these two people, although they didn't know each other at all, had experienced lots of the same big seismic events in the city, um, had kind of been through these big attacks and so on together. And that made me think about the points of overlap and maybe expanding it into a book, which I then did with three other people alongside those two. What I thought was striking about the uh, long read profile of the TV reporter, I thought it was incredibly powerful. It's like just how high the levels of violence are, like how many people are getting killed, how like as you, this sort of state of war analogy. Had you had you spent much like appreciable amounts of time in Karachi before you went back there in in 2011, 2012? Or were you kind of coming? Did you have a point of reference of what the city was like, like from visiting family earlier? Or were you, was that your immediate sort of, year zero impression of it when you when you were there yeah I hadn't actually spent much time there so I'd um I'd spent some time there when I was very little but too little to remember um so kind of two two or three we spent about a year in um in uh, Pakistan and India but I hadn't really been back um it was a place that kind of existed quite a lot in conversation and my mum's memories of it and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles and so on and my family from there spent a lot of time in London so I felt kind of connected in that way but I hadn't actually been myself since childhood um, until I went back in 2011 so it was quite a uh, I guess quite a kind of fresh impression Um, and then in on the first trip I made in 2011 I went with my mum and I did do some reporting but it was also a kind of family visit and uh you we're very much within the um the the kind of wealthier areas operate a bit like a city within a city i mean it's such a big place that there's it's kind of like multiple cities all next to each other as as are many of these big mega cities um and you can kind of uh forget that this level of violence is going on because it's quite cloistered and protected and people have private supplies of water and people have armed guards um, and all of those things so it comes up in conversation what's going on but it doesn't necessarily intrude on your day-to-day in quite the same way and then it was over the process of the next um, I mean I guess the next decade really I've sort of developed my own relationship with the place um, and the, the different cities that make up Karachi and the different areas that make up the the totality of the city um, but certainly when I lived there in 2012 um, I got a sense of the violence that was happening not just because of um the work i was doing but also uh even in those cloistered uh wealthier areas it really does uh it kind of erupts it might it it, it might just be you have to change your plans around but because there's a, a gun battle in one area of the city so you can't drive through it um and sure life continues as normal in other parts of the city but that's still something that just kind of becomes almost mundane um so yeah it really was an extraordinary extraordinary level of violence it's much improved now but yeah did you ever personally feel at risk I mean you tell a story in the book of driving home from dinner and being surrounded by uh people on motorbikes firing into the air did you you know as a as a reporter did you ever feel that you were at risk yeah I think so so that was a moment where I I mean I guess ultimately nothing happened and I was safe but I did feel really scared um that was uh, the MQM, which is the one of the most powerful political parties um, in the area, was calling a strike, and I was driving home, and there were gunmen from the from the party driving around, shooting into the air, which was the symbol to let people know that they needed to go home and shut up shop. So that was that was really frightening. Um, I think when I lived there, particularly, and then subsequently up until about twenty fifteen on trips back, you're so acutely aware of the security risk. Um, 
So that's things like um, being very aware of the risk of armed robbery, which can happen um, even though you travel around a lot by car, uh, gunmen on motorbikes um, pulling up next to you. It didn't actually happen to me, but I was very aware of the threat. Um, and the thing that worried me the most, I think, was the kidnap risk. Um, if you're a foreigner, if you're wealthy, uh, kidnap is not not now, but at that point was more common than a mugging would be in London. It really happened all the time, kidnapping for ransom. So that that's something that I was very acutely aware of on different reporting trips, particularly when doing anything sensitive or anything involving terror groups or organised crime groups. So that would be, you, you know, you kind of offset the risk um, by varying your routine or changing your car or, or changing where you're staying after a few days and so on. But it's... Um, definitely a present fear and a risk that does need to be offset. Could you tell us about the mechanics of how you got a book deal and how that worked? You know, on the show, we always like to, to lift a lid on this. So how did it go from, from that long read in The Guardian to, to getting, getting the deal with Granter and so forth? Yeah, so I actually did this in quite an unusual way. Um, so I had had this idea for the book um, for about a year and was sort of half doing the proposal and as I'm sure, I don't know if you found this, but I found it quite difficult to motivate myself because there's just an extraordinary amount of work needs to go into a proposal and you don't necessarily have a guarantee of anything at the end of it. So I was sort of had it half done and wasn't quite um, finishing it, basically. Um, and then Granta, or, or their then non-fiction arm Portobello, which has now been folded into Granta, um, launched a competition for non-fiction proposals for first-time authors and I thought I'd enter it so that I would have a deadline basically because I think um, years of being a journalist has kind of broken my brain for doing anything without a deadline. Uh, so I entered that uh, thinking it would just be a sort of good reason to get my proposal finished and then won it and so that meant I, I got the deal with Granter uh, and their agent I'm now represented by as a result of that and then after that point it kind of progressed like a normal book negotiation would I then although there was the understanding that Granta was going to publish it I then kind of worked on the proposal a bit with the agent uh, who then took it to Granta and negotiated what the um, what the advance would be and so on um, yeah so it was a slightly strange way around of doing it although it, it did then revert to maybe as it would be except that it didn't go to other publishers. With the proposal did you um, have all the characters that you have in the book picked out at that point? I had an idea of the the types of stories I wanted and the uh, like the areas of the city in particular different conflicts that I wanted to represent in it but I didn't have all the people so I think I had the two that I'd already written about the crime reporter and the ambulance driver um, and also map maker Siraj who did end up featuring in the final book who I'd met briefly in the course of some other reporting in Karachi and then the others I put kind of um, placeholders so people I'd read about um, or people like stories I'd read about and I kind of filled it in. Uh, it's a bit of a weird thing with a with a book proposal. You're kind of expected to write it as if you've already done all the research, but you obviously haven't done all the research. Um, so you and you don't want to you don't want to make things up. But it's a uh, I, I sort of cobbled together those extra bits from um, other pieces and on the kind of knowing at the time that I would go and find people. So I knew I wanted someone from the Liari, which was an area that was consumed by gang war, for instance. So I just put in someone who I'd read interviews with and later I found someone new. And the other thing is that actually in the proposal, I think I had like seven or eight people in it. And in the end, I only had five. And that was something that working on the proposal and discussing it with the publishers, um, I, I had an idea that, you, you know, I would need loads and loads and loads for a book. And they sort of made the point that it would be better to have a few fewer and told more thoroughly. 
I think the proposal piece is so interesting because certainly my experience was like you have to feel your way through it because you've not done it before and there's this sort of theoretical you know the three chapters and synopsis model of of doing it but I, I certainly found yeah I was really feeling feel my way through it but with yours and this is real like geeky always take notes stuff which we love but did you did you have a sample chapter like a specific bit of narrative prose ready at that stage or was it or was the long read used as that or how did you how did you kind of cut that and I had I had one other one other question I was interested in this is this is again real kind of inside baseball stuff but with that competition that you'd won were you then in a position where it had to go to Grandes so you couldn't you couldn't take it more broadly to market at that stage yes so that's that's right so there was a kind of commitment from when I accepted the prize there was a commitment that it was going to go to Granta and then on the other point I did I I did have a sample chapter which I sort of I sort of put it together based on the two long reads that I'd done um so the, the crime reporter and the ambulance driver but I what I wanted to do was to show um how the what the points of overlap would be so I wrote it there's a chapter that's actually in the book now it's very different to how it was in the proposal but about the the attack on the airport which happened um a few years ago I think it was 2014 um and both the crime reporter and the ambulance driver had been there separately not knowing each other and had experienced this and had talked to me about it and that was one of the things that had got me thinking about the book so I sort of took um some material from each of those pieces and the interview material around it and kind of wrote an account of the airport attack from cutting between their two perspectives um and in the end I did I think I got I think I I mean I obviously re-interviewed them a lot and I think I had more detail and it was a bit the writing just ends up being more kind of expansive in the final version but I did have I did have that um and when I reworked the proposal with the agent in the end um that wasn't a full chapter in the end it was sort of um fragments and scenes so I had that which was I guess it was about half a chapter and then I wrote some sort of scenes from other from other places in the book to give a sense of the different different kind of range of stories and that was on my agent's advice um I don't know if that approach would have worked if I hadn't already been in conversation with Granter or not the the kind of more fragmentary approach I know that the general advice is that you should have a a fully written through chapter. Could you tell us a little bit about how you picked your subject? Because I was struck when um, reading your book about how poignant Safdar's um, backstory is in terms of why he chose to become an ambulance driver. Did you interview him a little bit and then think, yes, he's at, this has actually got you know the potential for a long, to, you know, it's, it could sustain a long story and it could sustain part of the book? Or did you sort of interview a few people and then kind of winnow it down? Yeah, so when I was doing the the piece, the long form piece about ambulance drivers, um, I spoke to a few different ambulance drivers um, and he was just by far the easiest to talk to. I mean, he's like a real character. He's really funny and he talks loads and he's kind of um, very expressive with emotion. Um, and I guess always with these kinds of pieces and particularly with the book um the main criteria i guess is people who are able and willing to talk in a certain way about their experiences because not everyone is used to relating uh things that have happened to them in enough detail that you can convincingly reconstruct it or not everyone um you know really speaks in that mode and he really did so i for that original piece i spent like a week um just going out and about with him uh, during his work and there was inevitably quite a lot of time 
sitting around um, and and chatting, and that's when I kind of got all his different um, backstories and uh, his his childhood and so on. Um, and then when I came to do the book, I had a really good relationship with him already, so it was quite easy to go and and spend a few more days and and fill in the blanks. And I hadn't met his family when I was um, when I was doing the original piece, but. Uh, when I came back later, I did um, kind of spend some time with his family and, and sort of see him after a couple of years, which was really nice. Um, yeah, someone like that who I ended up, I've end, you know, I guess I first wrote about him in 2016. You can build a build a really nice relationship with. Can we talk a bit about narrative nonfiction as a genre, both maybe to, to explain to people who aren't familiar with it, but also what, what your approach was to to try and write stuff that had novelistic fluency and and flair and point of view and so forth and and in terms of pinning that down and, and getting the factual details how did you you know that's such a central part of, of the kind of work that you do both in the book and in the magazine stuff so so maybe yeah explain what it is for those who aren't familiar and then how you went about just procedurally reporting and writing in that vein yeah so narrative non-fiction I guess as you as you say is um uh, a non-fiction, a factual story that uses some devices of fiction. So it's generally got a beginning, middle and end. It might be told quite descriptively. Um, and there's obviously different shades of that. So I think um, while I do uh, sort of long form journalistic pieces, um, the writing in the book is probably more novelistic than I would do um, for a for a journalistic piece that was going in a newspaper or magazine. Although there's obviously lots of overlap and the the kind of basic approach is the same. Um, and this book was uh, I've I've got a note at the end actually kind of specifying that it's it's not a work of history. It's based on the the subjective experiences of these people. Um, so I kind of um, I checked things where I could, and in some instances, if I was really wasn't sure if something was was true or not or not because people were lying but because people's memories can be unreliable I just generally didn't include it so I sort of check things against um, like news reports and my own knowledge and my own reporting sometimes um, sometimes check things with people um, other people who are there family and friends but I kind of I, I may I thought a lot about this actually while I was doing the book and I kind of made the the judgment that um, you don't really want people to feel like um, aggressively checked up on. So it's kind of um, if I really couldn't find things from other sources or or if I really wasn't sure if something had happened, that's when I'd sort of um, double check things um, with other people uh, who were who were there at the time. And often that happened quite organically because I was spending so much time with people and their family and their workplaces. So it kind of often happened organically, which is the best thing that people, you know, other people would be around and you can just check things without it seeming like you're, I don't know, casting aspersions on someone. And then the other thing I thought about quite a lot, which I think about anyway in my journalism, but but felt more pressing with the book, was just, the, I guess, the kind of ethics maybe of, of reconstructing someone else's experience, um, especially when it was for things that I wasn't there for. And I really did do huge amounts of, of interviewing and spending time with these people. But there's, um, I think you're inevitably, when you are spending that much time with people, you're inevitably selecting the details that will make uh, and that will be interesting to the reader and that will give the reader a full picture or whatever. But you're kind of selecting and shaping it into a narrative. Um, and I always want people to 
to recognize themselves in what I write but you're you're it's, obviously it's kind of my impression of them to an extent as well um shapes what you choose and what um what will make the most compelling narrative so I thought a lot about that and grappled with it quite a lot um and generally I think the fact that I had spent so much time with people helped me to feel sort of confident in in some of those choices about what to leave out and and what to include um but yeah it's definitely tricky um when you're dealing with real living people's experiences I guess it's kind of like writing a series of of mini biographies in a way when you were doing your reporting did you use um recorders did you just have a kind of notebook and and pen to write down details as you went along how did you wrangle all of that material both so I um generally have a recorder running and also write notes in a in a notebook as well yeah generally did both so partly just from from paranoia about um about losing one or the other um and partly because um uh, actually the written notes ended up being really helpful because I was interviewing people and chatting to them for so long and often working with a translator which meant I did have time to kind of write down notes um it was really really helpful for kind of picking out the most important bits especially when sometimes I was doing like two and a half week reporting trips and reporting every single day like all day so uh, just having a, a sort of written record where I might write down the time in the recording that was a really key moment or something was really helpful. And the other thing, which was a nice byproduct, um, was that I was just writing down observations as well, um, especially when working with a translator, just sort of writing down things I saw or describing things or the way someone looked or whatever. Um, and that stuff you can't really capture on a recorder. Um, and I, a lot of the description that ended up in the book was kind of observations that I'd written down um, in the moment, whether that was of um, like the physical appearance of areas or um, of people's um, people's appearances or rooms or whatever. Um, kind of having that. I, some people like to work with photos, but I think I think I'm quite sort of verbal and word based. So I really liked having sort of descriptions that I'd written down um, there and then it really helped. How did you handle the language piece? Because you you speak some Urdu, but not completely fluently, right? Yeah, exactly. So I speak some, but it's not um, it's not good enough to feel for me to feel confident um, interviewing. I don't think I would. I think I would miss a lot of nuances. It's quite broken when I speak. Um, so I wanted people to be able to speak in the language they were most comfortable in, which for like four out of five of the people was um, was Urdu. So I worked with a translator who's a really good friend of mine um, and she's amazing. And I can kind of, when someone's speaking in Urdu, I can follow along. So I sort of know roughly what they're saying, but she was able to just give me the real kind of word for word and all the all the nuance, um, which was really invaluable um, to have that, I think. And then I um, also drafted in my mum for some checking audio uh, audio, audio um, transcripts and translating some bits at the last minute got some unpaid labour from my parents I can't remember we've interviewed someone else who said that their mother was uh, an unsung hero in their in their work I think I think it's come up more than more than once on the show actually the, I'm, I'm the, sure the yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I wondered I why um in in your book, in some of the chapters, you're sort of present in the story. You're sort of drawing readers' attention to the fact that you're asking them certain things at certain times um, and what you think the merits of that approach is. Yeah, it's a good question. And that's also something I thought quite a lot about. Um, I was very resistant to making it a book about me and my journeys through the place. Um, I think often women get pushed towards writing in a biographical, autobiographical mode um, and 
it's fine if you want to, but I, I didn't really. I think it felt important to sometimes show the framing and remind people that this is being refracted through a reporter. Um, and it also felt like um, there were a few moments where, while I was doing the reporting, where the way someone said something to me or um, the context in which it was said felt like it was illuminating in some way and I wanted to be able to share that. So that's why I kind of opted to to sort of dot that in in a few places, but without making it the focus. Could we roll back now a bit from, from the book to your kind of broader career in journalism? How did that get started? Um, we should say that Samira and I were at university together, so there's a bit of overlap from this. But when did you know that that was somewhere that you wanted to go and how did you go about making your steps in that direction? Yeah, sure. So I I think I was one of those people who basically always wanted to be a writer. So when I was a small child, I was like scribbling on bits of paper and stapling together and sort of proudly telling my parents I'd written a book. Um, so I always knew I wanted to do that. And journalism was something I'd thought about as a way to basically have a job and also also be a writer. Uh, so I knew I was interested in it from my teens. And then at university, I got involved with the student paper which I ended up editing um, and then did a few like summer work experiences between my second and third year. I did one a quite random mix at Cosmopolitan magazine and at Time Out and then um, then I applied for a load of things like unpaid stuff uh, for when I finished university so I ended up doing I did the Guardian's positive action scheme which was for ethnic minorities um, which was set up and still run, I think, by Joseph Harker, who works at The Guardian, and he's an incredible champion of diversity in the media. Uh, So that was a really, really good scheme. Um, Unlike any other work experience I'd done, it was incredibly structured, and you were given a mentor within the building, and you got to kind of go to different desks and actually do stuff. So it wasn't the kind of other internships where you're often like sitting around with not very much to do. So that was great. That was about a month long, I think. Um, And then I also did um, an epic eight week unpaid internship at the New Statesman, which I think they've I think they now pay their interns through different schemes. Um, But that then um, turned into a job very slowly. Um, First, I did a subscriptions job. So I knew they were talking about introducing these graduate trainee roles, sort of inverted commas because there wasn't really that much training but it was a sort of junior junior role but it took a while so first I worked on the subscriptions desk I'm doing an admin job for the best part of the next maybe it was like six months or maybe even up to a year I can't quite remember how long it was Um, I did that part-time while I did an NCTJ course Um, and then when I finished the NCTJ course I got this um, graduate trainee job so it was basically setting up the George Eaton who's still at the New Statesman in fact and I were, were hired and we were sort of um, writing online and doing web stuff. They were sort of kind of amazing to think that magazines didn't all have a established web presence, but we were basically hired to do that sort of work um, work on the web. And then I worked there for the next three or four years. I think I was there, I think I did an internship there in 2008, and then I basically worked there until I left in 2012. How did you make those early years when you were doing unpaid work and you were studying work financially? By living, my parents live in London. uh, So I grew up in London. So that's a huge, um, huge privilege, I think, which allowed me to do unpaid um, internships, which I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise at all. Um, I did some tutoring for money. um, So sort of, yeah, tutoring GCSE and A-level students in English. Um, But yeah, I think that the main thing really is, was just having 
having family in London who I was living with. Um, and yeah, it was a stretch, definitely. And I think lots of people can't do it. I remember um, after I uh, had the job at the New Statesman, people who were doing internships afterwards when they still did these very long unpaid internships, there were people who were like, there was someone who was coming down from Newcastle and staying in a youth hostel during the week and so on. So it really was like tough for people who didn't have that London base. It's interesting what you said as well about that, you know, it was good because you're doing real stuff as opposed to work experience where you're unoccupied. And I think I think in some ways that's the hidden other villainy of unpaid internships and in that like if if the place is not paying you, they've got no investment in you, right? They've got no skin in the game. And I remember I had that similar experience at university of sort of you you arrive somewhere you've given nothing to do. And then in America, where I was at German school, it was like you were an intern and it was paid. And because of that, as you say, you had someone you were reporting to and you had real work and everything like that. So I think there's a sort of two part thing in that. And um, what about your your decision to to go freelance then after these um this period at the Statesman? What was your your thinking and your your motivation to do that? Um, I think I couldn't see a path to doing the kind of work I wanted to do um, at the New Statesman side. It was an amazing first job because um, it was a small team and I got to do all sorts of different stuff. I think much more than I would have in a in an entry level job at somewhere bigger. Um, but after like three years or so in the job, I couldn't really see a path up. I, I knew I probably didn't want to be do kind of full time editing and that writing was what I wanted to do. Um, and I wanted to do longer stuff and try living abroad and so on and I'd got been getting increasingly interested in Pakistan professionally and also on a personal level as well and so I'd sort of been thinking about it for quite a long time uh, and in the end I just decided just decided to do it so I um, against the advice of um, of lots of people who were sort of I mean lots of people I spoke to just said you've got a job in journalism which is really hard to get at the moment it's insane to leave it but I just after gearing myself up for several months just quit and I thought I'll give myself I'll give myself a year and I'll see how it works um and I quit I think in that June I left and then I moved to Pakistan that September and was there until the following year um yeah so it took took quite I was thinking about it for a long time before I actually did it for sure and once you'd gone freelance how did you build a sort of network of editors to pitch to um and, and places that you wanted to write for so I think it helped that I had been a staff writer effectively at the New Statesman. So I had um, bylines to show and I had that that name. Um, once I decided that I was leaving and handed in my notice and everything, I just frenetically asked uh, everyone I could think of to go for a coffee with me. And that was sometimes like just blind emailing. Um, I, did, I, I met up with quite a lot of foreign editors, actually, although I've never been um, a news journalist and, and I'm still not. I sort of had in my head that that's what I should be. trying to do when I was in Pakistan so I met lots of foreign news editors um I I actually didn't end up doing that much news I I sort of um stuck with the features which is where my skills are and what I've always preferred doing but I met lots and lots of people and then while I was away it was just a case of um of pitching a lot and it took a while to build up and then it, it kind of came in in multiple stages I guess because I had the the year that I was in in Pakistan and um, writing for people there and you sort of get um, people start to know that you're doing that and sometimes people approach you and so on. Um, and then when I decided that I was going to move back to the UK, kind of doing it all over again, I guess, because I was just sort of thinking about what I was going to write about now that I was in the UK because I'd sort of had an easy, not easy, but 
you have your set beat when you go somewhere else and, and coming back and thinking, oh, there's literally anything in at home that I could pitch about. And you kind of have to reframe your thinking a bit. And so some of the editors that I'd been writing for um, while I was in Pakistan, because I'd been doing this sort of features pieces, some of those editors I could I could pitch UK stuff to as well. I, I think I did a lot more of that, just sort of emailing people and going for coffees and kind of um, trying lots and lots of different things um, for a while. That's basically, yeah, I think my main bit of advice is just keep trying and keep pitching people. And also thinking a bit laterally, thinking outside just the big newspapers, for instance, and thinking about publications overseas or whatever it is. And you know, it's a, it's a rule of the show. We always ask about money um, with this. And could you tell us a bit about how in the period you were writing your your book, how you manage the different strands. So the, the book writing, the magazine work, and then you also did this editing work at The New Humanist, right? Yes. You a couple of those a week. So how how did that all fit together? And with, with the finances, say as much or as little as you're comfortable with, but we, we just like, you know, how did you make it, make it all work, basically? Yeah, so I actually found the finances of book writing a total nightmare. Just before, uh, I mean, I've been freelance now for like nine years. It's only really took a few good few years um, of being freelance to feel sort of comfortable financially and professionally and so on. So I think initially you have this um, this real fear that like every bit of work you do is your last or I did anyway as a, as a natural warrior. That sort of lifted and I, I at the point when I got the book deal I was reasonably financially comfortable. I had a regular editing job with The New Humanist um, which I still have and doing kind of reasonably well-paid writing work and so on and it, it all felt like it was sort of working and then with the book it just sort of it was a lot harder to make it all work basically because uh, what I hadn't appreciated was that you don't get your whole book advance up front you get it generally in either three or four installments mine was in four so that's a quarter of it when you sign the contract a quarter of it when you submit the first draft a quarter when the hardback's published and a quarter when the paperback's published and that means that very I mean my advance wasn't huge it was fine but it wasn't huge that very quickly like smallish but fine amount of money becomes a minuscule amount of money when it's being broken down into these chunks so it ended up that i had basically a few thousand pounds effectively on signing the contract which was very frustrating because you sort of think well I, I don't need it when i'm publishing the hardback and i'm doing all my other work or certainly not the paperback in three years or whatever i need it now when i'm doing the research so that was difficult, especially coupled with the fact that I needed to pare back on my other reporting. So I think for I had 15 months um, from signing the contract to submitting the first draft. And I initially just sort of carried on doing lots of freelance writing and my editing as well. Uh, and after a point, I had to really pare back on that. Um, the other thing was that I needed to travel for the book. It was expensive to research and paying for translation and all these different things. Um, so I had a few grants, which I think lots of people get when they're doing nonfiction. So one was from the Society of Authors, which is amazing. They give they give grants out to help you with the research for a book, or you can even get them just to support you while you're writing. I also had a fellowship with Columbia University, a media fellowship. It was a sort of cross-disciplinary program that I'd done two years in a row, but I got it again that year, which involved a reporting grant as well as taking part in a, in a conference. So I was able to put some of that towards doing book research as well. So I just sort of muddled through that, basically. Um, and then in terms of money to live on, I... I found that I was able to carry on with my editing job, which was two days a week. Something about, it just sort of used a slightly different bit of the brain. Um, so the last six months or so, I was primarily just doing editing and, and working on my book um, with the odd bit of other freelance writing. But it basically meant that my income dipped 
for that year and then yeah just sort of bounce back after I'd submitted the first draft but yeah it's, it's really challenging I think especially if you're you know as a freelancer your income depends on what work you're doing and you have this long stretch where you're not getting it kind of feels like you're working unpaid even though the money's coming later but yeah it's tricky for sure. Could we talk a little bit about um, one of the articles you sent over, the Trojan Horse uh, long read from 2017? Uh, was that an uh, an idea that you pitched or were you commissioned to do that? Yeah, that was an idea I pitched. So I'd actually done, um, I'd done a piece about the Trojan Horse affair when it first happened in um, 2014, I think it was, when I was, I did that for the New, uh, the New Humanist, which is the magazine where I work part-time. Uh, so I was interested in it um, and then off the back of the piece I'd done for New Humanist one of the teachers who was involved so I hadn't actually managed to speak to any of the, the teachers for that original piece um, it's a fairly quick turnaround feature I'd done but one of the teachers had seen the piece um, and felt that it was fair and that he wanted to talk um, someone who'd been implicated in the scandal so he'd got in touch with me via sort of several steps removed contact and I'd already done the piece I didn't really know what would come of it but I met up with him for a coffee when he was in London to to meet a lawyer and I thought he was really interesting uh, didn't really do anything with it for a couple of years and then I was having a sort of ideas meeting with David Wolf at The Guardian and I mentioned this um, and the idea for the piece then sort of grew out of that I'd initially thought maybe I could do a sort of profile of this teacher Roswan um, who does end up in the piece but through discussion with the Guardian Longridge team it sort of decided we'd do um, a real kind of try and try and tell the definitive story of what had happened so yeah then I went back and getting on for a year and a half I spent reporting it in the end partly because I'd agreed with yeah I was I was going to ask quite how long that took because it looked like an enormous amount of legwork it took so long partly because I'd agreed Razwan was really my starting point um and I'd agreed with him that he was going through this really lengthy um, Department for Education um, professional misconduct hearing at the time. Um, and he'd sort of agreed on the advice of his lawyers that he would speak to me on the basis that the piece wasn't published until this DfE hearing was done, which I agreed to. But then they kept delaying it because they kind of didn't really have much of a case and they kept delaying it and delaying it and delaying it. Uh, and then every time it was delayed, I'd just sort of think, oh, well, maybe I should, I'll just interview a few more people. And so, yeah, it was like, I think it actually ended up working in my favour, although there was a point where I was like, maybe I'm just never, ever going to be able to publish any of this and maybe I'm never going to finish it. But yeah, it was a long, a long stretch. Good year and a half, I think. Was it a difficult one to wrangle sort of legally because it was involving, you know, the government and... I think we've actually explained what we're talking about here. The um, news report that there was a sort of radical Muslim takeover of schools in Britain. Was it something that became very sensitive legally as you were reporting it? Uh, it was sensitive on lots of different counts. Um, it was the community in Birmingham that the scandal had focused on felt very demonised by the press. Um, so it took quite a lot of time um, getting people to talk to me. And it had been such a huge national scandal that it really, like people were really angry about it on all sides. So on one side you had people really convinced that this was like a terrible um, extremist plot and on the other side that it was like horrible Islamophobia and so sort of treading a path um, between those two things was really challenging. Legally I think a lot of it um, in terms of the government role was like the government role was really outrageous. You had Michael Gove, who was the education secretary at the time, really fanning the flames and, and inflaming it um, further. Loads of leaks of really sensitive material from the Department for Education. Um, so I think that was all quite felt like a sort of matter of public record. So I didn't feel too worried about that. The, the main difficulty was sort of 
the real contesting narratives that you had. But as I got further into the reporting and spoke to more and more people, the really interesting thing about it was that a lot of the time people on both sides of this um, really polarised um, case weren't actually disagreeing on the, the fundamental facts. So they weren't disagreeing that, for instance, religion was emphasised in the school day in some of these schools. It was just about whether you saw that as a sinister plot or whether you saw that as using the home culture of the community to motivate the kids. Um, so it was a kind of became a bit about interpretation but it was definitely it was a challenging challenging piece on lots of different counts i was wondering if you think that there is a kind of common thread that runs between some of your work and and maybe across the magazine and the book and the idea i had and you might you might completely shoot this down was that do you have an interest in sort of taking a situation where there's a very strong like narrative about it or bit like public narrative and then lifting the lid and kind of teasing out the complexities and the reason i asked that is about the gatwick drone story which i love um, and it seemed obviously it's it's completely different in in subject. But do you, do you think is that a fair analysis that what you like to do journalistically is sort of lift the lid, tease out the nuance like that, that sort of thing? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, I don't know if there's a snappier word for it, but like my favorite kind of story to do is sort of um, like, here's this really big thing that happened. And, you know, here's what actually happened. You know what I mean? So I really do enjoy doing that. Something that was big kind of... Um, scandal or headline news that hasn't been quite followed up on and and going back and really putting the legwork in and and trying to unpick it um yeah I find that really satisfying really like it where did you start with with the drone article in terms of when you were how did you want to begin your reporting and Samira can you maybe just explain again what the drone article is to to our listeners (laughs) yeah we're talking about these things just like everyone will know what we're talking about (laughs) we'll put them in the show notes but but give a brief uh brief heads up yeah so the Gatwick drone was in December 2018 Gatwick airport was shut down uh after some alleged drone sightings and it ended up being shot for 33 hours. And there were like well over 100 drone sightings reported um, in the end. And uh, it was a cost of like millions of all these flights that were diverted and and so on. And then they didn't actually ever find who'd done it. Uh, But the police were very adamant that it was a a kind of really malicious, complicated plot. But there was no, um, no one ever found any drones. They didn't find any culprits. No one claimed responsibility because initially they'd thought it might be um, protesters, environmental protesters, for instance, but no one, no one claimed responsibility for it. Um, And it was this enormous news event um, in the UK, but also internationally. It was really like dominated the front pages and the news broadcast for days. And then it just kind of disappeared. Um, And then the police investigation was closed uh, because of a lack of leads. And I was just sort of, um, as many people were, just sort of mildly obsessed with this story. I'd actually been on a plane um, coming back from a book research trip that was coming into Gatwick on the 19th of December, which is when it happened, and the flight was sort of diverted. I got off quite lightly in the end because it was just diverted to, to Heathrow, so it wasn't too bad. Some people were um, ended up in Amsterdam and, and all over the place. So I'd kind of been really fascinated with it um, from when it happened. Um, and I sort of, when when it was like a year from the incident in 2019, I was deep within um, writing my book. I think I'd just filed the first draft. I was like, I bet someone's going to do a piece about like what really happened and no one did. So then I thought maybe I could do this. Um, maybe I could do this for, for two years. And then, yeah, what was your question was about how I started reporting for it. Yeah, that was tricky. So it's sort of reading around about what was there. I'd uh, pitched it and my editor, David, at the, the Guardian said, 
said that it needed to have some kind of resolution. So his his brief was basically, you need to solve it if you're going to do it, which is quite a difficult, quite a difficult <laughs> brief. Um, which, uh, so then I, I sort of, I was trying to find new information. Um, what really felt like a breakthrough was when I found this um, community of, of drone enthusiasts who'd been filing um, FOIs. Wh- whom you visited, right? Yeah, I did, I did. Um, Ian Hudson was an amazing treasure trove. He'd been filing um, loads of FOI requests about it and they'd been sort of doing a lot of sleuth work in the intervening two years. And so that felt like a really exciting um exciting moment because it was just um it was apart from the fact that you know they'd been really looking into it it was just like a great window into a completely different world which i really enjoyed with a piece like that how do you uh gauge the tone versus some of the versus some of the other pieces that you write how do you sort of calibrate where it should sit on the spectrum of kind of funny to obviously very serious yeah that's a good question um guess it was quite natural actually it's quite a fun subject Uh, what I really liked about this story and and working on it was that it was a kind of fun subject that it's got a real element of the ridiculous to it but it allows you to get into some really serious stuff as well Um, a lot of stuff around like um, panic and uh, changing technology and these kind of quite serious things so yeah I didn't want to be too mocking but then in a way, there was so much of the ridiculous in the way the story had initially unfolded. Like um, one of the things I wrote about the couple who were arrested by Sussex police. So, I mean, it, it's very serious and they, they had a really awful time and their details were leaked to the press and there was basically no basis for their arrest. But like the 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 male headline was, um, are these the morons who ruined Christmas? And then you had like police... Um, flying police drones and then people were spotting the police drones and reporting them as drone sightings because the police drones were looking for the drones so there was a lot of it that just was inherently quite funny Um, and so I think that um, yeah that lent some lightness to it. And what's your relationship with the long read now are you just a freelancer or are you contracted for them how does that work mechanically? I'm a freelancer, although I'm talking to them about um, about contract. Um, so I'm a, a freelancer, but I do I, I am basically always in conversation and and working on something for them. Like most of the time, they so yeah, might move to might move to a contract potentially. But I yeah I do um, generally have sort of a back and forth going about ideas with them. And how is your time divided more generally? Obviously, you do your two days a week of editing, but how do you divide up your remaining time between no, like long reads and other pieces for other publications it really depends I guess on what I'm working on um about a year so the start of last year I was the deputy editor at the New Humanist and about um, the start of last year I became the editor uh so it's taken up a little bit more time so it's still around two days a week but it's between sometimes goes up to three so that's left slightly less space for um freelancing um but I'm still doing long reads but maybe a little bit less of the shorter stuff that I might have have done as well so yeah it's a kind of mix really I guess if I'm doing a a kind of long form reported piece I find it very difficult to work on more than one simultaneously I have done at points but I find it really sort of brain scrambling so I might be doing pitching things um pitching pieces while doing the reporting or writing for a long piece but I find it really hard to be kind of simultaneously reporting more than one um more than one thing or if i or if i do end up doing two long form pieces simultaneously it ends up just taking so long uh, because i find it quite hard to kind of just something about the brain space and that's also why i couldn't 
after a certain point with the book I wasn't able to do much um, freelance writing alongside it so something about holding it all in your head the kind of feel like you need to go down a real rabbit hole to be able to be thorough and do it well so yeah it just kind of depends I find that really interesting because I, I find it with kind of with magazine stuff I'm the opposite I think I think there is a danger of being spread too thin but I find the advantage of having a few irons in the fire at one stage is if you get stuck on something or if there's an inevitable period where you're I suppose because these pieces have such a long life cycle that say if you're in an access negotiation with one that's actually a very different thing than if you're field reporting with another or going through edits and I find kind of similarly as you said to the benefit of having some different headspace with stuff I find being quite hedged with that is is um is helpful but I suppose it's just it's a very personal thing yeah I think I did when I was doing like sort of normal features I found it much easier to multitask but it's something about the kind of long format and how in depth you have to go I find it quite hard to do but I still I guess you're you're right that there are kind of uh, it's often a protracted process and there's lots of delays and things but I guess because I'm also editing and there's often like as a freelancer just like random stuff that comes up so I might be doing like I don't know like bits of radio or kind of different projects and different mediums so I feel like I've always got lots of stuff going on and maybe just slotting in more than one long form piece at a time is too much but I might be pitching like at the moment I'm I'm reporting for a long piece for The Guardian and I'm also working on some pitches for for other places and and talking to other editors about things. Um, But, I mean, that said, I am being extremely slow about getting the pitches done. So it's something about the, yeah, the sort of needing to go really focused on something to to conceptualise it, I don't know. Can I get one last question in? We're just quickly going to time, but it's something I really forgot to ask. What's the situation with um, secondary rights to your work, with TV rights and stuff like that? Is that something that you're conscious of and do you own them or do the publishers own them? How have you you walked that one? So it's not something I've ever really given that much thought to until recently, I guess. Um, yeah, I know this is a big thing often for for writers writing for US publications, kind of negotiating those rights. I, up until last year, um, like quite rarely signed a contract for work, actually. The Guardian, which is my main sort of writing home uh, at the moment, just uh, last year, I think, introduced contracts where they retain some audio visual rights so it would be split 50 50 if something's optioned but yeah it's something that I maybe should think about more but I haven't um it's not like US writers would negotiate this very hard on on each piece but yeah maybe maybe it's something to something to think about a bit harder I can see Armando Ianichi coming for your Gatwick Brown stories so yeah (laughs) (laughs) interestingly I had loads of documentary makers getting in touch which kind of surprised me because it's all sort of happened already and is in the past so yeah be interested to see Uh, I think it's a movie yeah (laughs) um well we've reached the end of our time but thank you so much for talking so candidly and um openly about your career and about your book um, and the process of writing it Um, and good luck with everything going forward thanks for having me hello it's us again Rachel what was your biggest takeaway from the conversation with Samira I found it fascinating learning more about how she reported um, Karachi Vice Um, when I was reading it I was struck by how much time must have gone into it and how much time she must have spent with her subjects and you know, getting to know them and spending time with their family. And um, I thought she did a great job of sort of inserting herself into the story where relevant and sort of taking a more dispassionate view where appropriate. Um, how about you? I also think the book is fascinating. The bit that really stuck with me was, though, her, her work on the Gatwick drone, which I think is one of the, the really standout pieces of magazine writing. <laughs> you um, love that I, story. I absolutely love that story. <laughs> and also I was, I was glad that I, 
I kind of probed as to whether there was this sort of connecting thread between her magazine work where she takes a, a well-known situation and lifts the lid and basically says, this is nothing like you thought it was, which, which it was interesting that she kind of uh, accorded with that as an idea. But I think that was a, that was a great piece. And I thought, yeah, a really interesting interview to get a lot of really, really good process stuff from her. So, so great to have her on the show. Um, Rachel, what's been going on with you? Well, I know you've, you've been nominated for an award. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm thrilled to still be considered a young journalist. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, at the Society of Editors uh, Awards, which are, um, this, there's a virtual ceremony on March 31st, but you are also nominated for an award. So it's a, I am, I, a good turnout for Always Take Notes. Yeah, we're, we're, we're a potentially award-winning podcast. Um, yes, I've been nominated uh, for Health Reporter of the Year for my work on the pandemic, which I'm very pleased about and um, good to good to... Yeah, there was a huge amount of work on those stories last year. It'd be great if they if they get some recognition. So so yeah, we will see. And we'll have to see what happens at the award ceremony, which I think will be will be interesting, but presumably more measured than these things are often in uh, in person. Um, and otherwise, I've just been continuing to sort of ride the wave of my. Well, I mean, there's nothing to stop you getting really drunk at home. <laughs> staring staring at a Zoom screen, um, and otherwise, yeah, I've just been con- continuing to sort of ride the ride the wave with my book which has been um been fun uh, and is and is ongoing what else has been going on with you Rachel I um have finished finally my piece on period dramas which should be coming out soon so that's great um and yeah just putting together some ideas now for my next piece which is always my favorite part of the whole process is coming up with the with the stuff doing the research <laughs> and then from it's downhill from there can you <laughs> can you can you disclose any of these any of these ideas um, I could. <laughs> I like to keep them close to my chest until they pay you, off. You don't. But... <laughs> you don't have to. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum, and me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar, and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always on Patreon at Always Take Notes and if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.